0: In the Gospel of Mark, uh, we're in the middle of a section, a uh, section that includes five stories that are centered on this escalating conflict that is happening between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. Um, That statement alone should cause us to sit up and take notice uh, that when Jesus was on earth, um, he was in an ongoing conflict with religious people. Um, we are religious people in the sense that we go to church and we do things under the umbrella of religion. And so if you are a religious person, uh, we should sit up and take notice when Jesus was on earth and had conflict with religious people. And so that in and of itself should cause us not to just say it was them and uh, the way they lived, but it should cause us to self-evaluate. And how we're living our everyday um, religious lives. I know we don't like to use that. We cliche everything, right? It's not religion, it's relationship, all that stuff. But um, it kind of is religion. Matter of fact, James talks about religion, what pure religion is. Um, and so we, we just have to pay attention, and we start using this language about religious and how does, it's not just like the Pharisees, but how this apply to my life. And what's dangerous about what happened with Jesus and the conflict with him and the religious leaders is all of this ends with a plot to kill him. At the end of our section, uh, when we get to it uh, in, in chapter 3, this five conflicting stories ends with we are going to destroy Jesus. And again, this is religious people saying these things. Um, So there's a healing episode and another healing episode at the end of these five stories and sandwiched in between, bracketed in between those two healing stories are three episodes of Jesus and the religious leaders that center on his eating habits, okay? Um, His eating habits. And again, the, the conflict was not whether Five Guys or Whataburger is better. Some of you are like, neither, right? I know, like Whataburger invaded Decatur and everybody's got an attitude about it, like this is not from here, we don't realize. How many of you like Whataburger? How many of you haven't had it yet? Okay, how many of you like it? Okay, so we're like, yeah, it's meat between bread, I'm in. Um, and it is Whataburger, by the way, in Texas, which is where it's from. I know it's spelled like what a burger, but it's pronounced Whataburger. I've been told by all my Texas friends over and over, but That's not what the eating conflict was about um, with Jesus. The first conflict that we saw last week, the conflict was around who Jesus was eating with. That he was eating with the wrong people. He was eating with sinners. Today, it's more about the eating habits of his disciples is what the question is. So last week was kind of a who question. This week is a when question. When they were eating and specifically when they were not eating. Eating. So, let's look at chapter 2 and verse 18 and set the context here. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? So, last week, again, was kind of about feasting, eating with all the wrong people. This week, it's about fasting. Let me put this in context for you. The question that people have is why are John's disciples, this would be John the baptizer, at this point in the Jesus story, uh, John has probably been martyred. If you know his story, he went on to be killed. Part of the mourning process for his disciples would be fasting. So it would make sense for John's disciples to be fasting. The second group that asked this question, why are your disciples not fasting, is the Pharisees. Let me tell you a little bit about the Pharisees. Um, The Pharisees had been around for at least 200 years um, prior to Jesus. Their name, a Pharisee, means separated ones or holy ones. They were staunchly opposed to any type of acceptance of the Greco-Roman culture of that day. Remember, they're under Roman rule and reign now. So any acceptance of the Greco-Roman ideals or values um, into Jewish life was was frowned upon and uh, disregarded completely. They attempted to live life completely, strictly by the Torah. And then this other group of traditions that were um, their their own traditions that were called the oral traditions. And these um, are displayed in a lot of kind of Jewish writings from the first century. Matter of fact, the Jewish historian Josephus, Who wrote a lot around the first century um, said this about the Pharisees they were extremely influential among the common people, extremely influential among the common people. Um, History tells us there's probably about 6,000 Pharisees. They were considered the uh, authorized interpreters of the law. Uh, They were considered strict adherents um, of the law and their traditions. Matthew calls it the tradition of the elders in some of the stories about Jesus there. And basically this was this detailed set of oral traditions that were added on top of the Torah. And so if the law of Moses, first five books of the Old Testament said, do these things, do not do these things, uh, the Pharisees and other Jewish groups um, came along and said, in order to not do these things, we need to not do all these things to prevent us from doing this. And soon, not only was it just about first five books, soon it was about everything. Everything determined what was right and wrong and not just exactly what the law said. So this was the Pharisees. And again, of all the religious groups of his day, uh, Jesus was aligned more closely with the foundational beliefs of the Pharisees. But he regularly stood in conflict with them over their one strict adherence to the law and then to these added traditions. Jesus accuses the Pharisees of overvaluing their traditions and undervaluing the intent Behind the law. He maintained added rules and regulations, distorted the word of God, distorted the true intention of God's law. So instead of honoring God's law, their web of rules and regulations confined and burdened those attempting to live by these demands. What we see in our text is an example of that. Three of the pillars of First century Judaism were prayer, almsgiving, so giving to the poor basically, and fasting. These were three pillars known in first century Judaism. The law, Torah, only required fasting one specific day of the year. For the Jewish people, the Day of Atonement. It was a reflection upon Moses bringing the children out the day that the death angel passed over. Atonement was a, a big celebration in Jewish life. And so there was one day a year that fasting um, was, was, was commanded. But the oral traditions that had been created on top of the law, those teachings specify at least three other types of fast. In other, as a matter of fact, when the Pharisees were around, they also fasted every Monday every Thursday because fasting became kind of this badge of honor, a badge of religious commitment and piety, a way to impress God, to sway God in some way in my my favor. Not only did it become that, but it also became kind of this, this badge among the people. Like that's a religious person, that's a righteous person because they fast. The people began to notice, right, this kind of Religious adherence to fasting as a, that must be a righteous person. That must be an unrighteous person because they do not fast. So you can kind of see why this question was generated. The people around Jesus noticed the disciples of Jesus are not fasting. They're not like other religious groups. And so they began to question their sincerity. Fasting was also believed... To be this act that would hasten God's redemption, salvation. Remember, they believed in a coming Messiah. And fasting was a way to to hasten that. And so they would fast, beckoning God to bring salvation. That salvation would come. That his kingdom on earth would be delivered. That his promises would be fulfilled. And so here's the question. Jesus, are your followers unconcerned? Are they unconcerned about the salvation of Israel? Are they unconcerned about God's coming kingdom? Like, why are they not fasting? Why are they neglecting this religious ritual? In that context, this is a legitimate question. We have to think they grew up in an environment where everyone they know that they considered religious or righteous were people who fasted regularly. And so it's a very natural question. Jesus comes along, this rabbi is gathering these followers, all this healing's happening, all this preaching is being done about the kingdom, and so they're scratching their heads. If this is true, why, is his, why are his followers not even fasting? Let's look at the response of Jesus, beginning in verse 19. Jesus has something to say. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Do what? All right? What's Jesus say? Jesus responds with the analogy of a wedding. So let me tell you about a wedding celebration in this context. A wedding celebration in a Jewish village normally lasted around seven days. All of you fathers out there are like, seven days? I can't afford one hour. Seven day wedding celebration. In that wedding celebration, it was a massive celebration with lots of food and wine and song and dance, lots of fun, lots of celebration, a true kind of party celebration atmosphere. Any thought of fasting at a wedding was out of the question. It's kind of that way for us today. Like any thought of going to a big celebration like a wedding and being like, no, I'm out. Want some cake? No. Champagne? No. Little wedding mints? Can you buy those little wedding mints? Anyway, I mean, where, where, when else do you get the little tiny mints, but outside of a wedding? How many of you like the little wedding mints at the wedding? I think you can buy them at like Cracker Barrel or someplace, or as I like to call it, yard sale with food, um, <laughs> Cracker Barrel. And so you can get those little wedding minutes. But can you imagine being at the wedding? Think about seven days. Seven days of food and drink and celebration. And people are coming up to you like, hey, would you, would you like some cake? No, no wedding cake. Would you like some food? Would you like dinner? Would you like whatever? No, I'm out. You'd be like, dude, you're at the wrong place. All right, this is a celebration. We do not fast at a celebration. Here's the point. God's kingdom has come in Jesus Salvation is here, Jesus is saying. This is not a time for fasting. This is a time for celebration. Fasting is inappropriate when you are celebrating God's kingdom, God's rule and reign in our hearts and lives. All throughout the gospel stories, the Jesus movement is characterized by celebration, not somberness, not seriousness. It is a wedding, not a funeral. As a matter of fact, almost every funeral that Jesus showed up to, what happened? He turned it into a celebration. Like, raise people from the dead. They're like all mourning around Lazarus's tomb. Jesus is like, Lazarus, get up, come out, right? Dude calls Jesus because his daughter's died, and Jesus is like, she's not dead. He just, she's just sleeping, and all, all the people are making fun of Jesus, laughing at him. Jesus is like, look, it's, it's not a funeral. It's a celebration. Get up. He even says to her, daughter, get up. Everywhere Jesus goes, he turns these funerals into celebrations. That's what the movement of God is about. The kingdom of God is about. It is a celebration. It is a wedding celebration, not a funeral. And Jesus is saying the groom is here. It is a time for celebrating. Now, the the observers find this hard to accept. The followers of Jesus are not taking their religious observances and adherence to the, to the rules serious enough. And Jesus says, because the bridegroom's here. The groom is here. Salvation has come. Get out the food. Get out the good drink. Make music. Dance. Celebrate. Rejoice. The kingdom of God has arrived. It's not the time for fasting. It's a time for feasting. And then Jesus does say here in verse 20, we read it, there is coming a time that, a soon coming time, a day, when the groom will be forcibly removed. Right? Jesus makes reference here. There's coming a time I'll be taken away. I'm not here to stay. Jesus is on a mission He will die, be raised back to life, and then ascend to the Father. The groom, who is now present, Jesus is saying, will be taken away. He is present now, but he will be absent then. But follow this. His absence, we learn as the story develops, his absence enables presence His absence enables, remember what Jesus says to the disciples? I'm going away so that what can happen? The Holy Spirit can come and live and dwell inside of you. He would, the the Savior who was present would be forcibly removed and become absent. But in his absence, he is providing presence. God himself will live inside of us. He will return to the Father in order that the Holy Spirit will descend and take up residence in the lives of the followers. The Holy Spirit will enable and empower the advancement of this new kingdom. This new movement of Jesus' followers. It operates outside the confines of this old way of doing things. The presence of God is something new. It will be experienced, not just anticipated. The kingdom of God, Jesus is saying, is a new reality. The kingdom has come. Now, follow me. We've talked about this some. The kingdom has come, but it has not been fully realized, has it? We still live in a broken world. And so we live in this this tension. We exist in this already, Jesus has accomplished everything that's needed, but not yet, season. The kingdom has not been fully realized on earth. Salvation is already provided, and yet we long for and anticipate His second coming when His kingdom will be established and finalized on earth as it is in heaven as Jesus prayed, when final victory is established. So what happens in this in-between time? In this in-between time, let's just use fasting since that's our example. Fasting is one of those spiritual practices that, and here's the illusion of Jesus in this verse, that helps us focus on who He is and maintain this posture of watchfulness and repentance and anticipation of his return. Now, we'll we'll come back to that in a moment at the end of the message. Let's finish the text first. Jesus illustrates this with two parables from everyday life. Look at verse 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth in an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the, wine, uh, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for new wineskins. And again, we say, huh? Let me break it down for us. Parable number one depicts this kind of idea of a new patch of cloth that is sewn onto an old garment. And when this garment is washed, right, this old garment's been washed many times, it's um, already lost, you know, it's not going to shrink anymore. Uh, This old garment's been washed, but when this new patch is placed on this old garment, when it goes through that process, uh, the, the shrinking will happen, it will cause a tear in both the garment and the patch. So I have a few things in life that I'm kind of particular about. One of the things I'm particular about is I have um, certain items of clothing that I feel like, I don't even know if it's true, but I don't want to test it. I feel like if I dry them, they're going to shrink. Are you with me? And so I'm constantly saying to Ash, you know she gets tired of it, and uh, we try to balance laundry around the house, so I do laundry as well. But uh, when she's washing and drying, I try to say, hey, I put X, Y, and Z um, in the, the wash this week. Please do not dry it. Just hang it to the side some of it makes sense some of it's just absurd like who cares if a t-shirt shrinks up i'll have like t-shirts i want to wear and i don't want it to be like a size medium after it comes out and so a perfect illustration of this, like Zach got a brand new hoodie for Christmas. It was an expensive hoodie and all these things. And um, like a typical teenager, he like wears something for seven minutes and then it's in the wash and dry and all that. There's no like, you know, you can wear this longer than just one time for six minutes, right? You can wear it like multiple times. Uh, but none of that, none of that logic because that would actually involve putting a piece of a clothing on a hanger and putting it back in the closet. So do away with that theory. Um, and so Zach gets this nice hoodie And um, he does wash and he comes in the next day and I'm like, what happened to your hoodie? It's like up to here and here and like here, like that hoodie cost a lot of money and it was whatever it was large and now it's a small, like what happened? And sure enough, put it in the dryer, shrunk up the hoodie. So that's language that we can understand that Jesus is using here. All right, you put something new on an old piece of clothes, it ruins both of them. The second parable he uses, again, depicts wineskins that are filled with new wine that ferments, and as it ferments, it expands, and it causes these old, brittle wineskins to burst, and it ruins both the wine and the wineskin. So in both parables, something that was previously useful is destroyed. And it's of no further value or worth. The new patch, the new wine are incompatible with the old. And attempting to combine the old with the new ruins both. In the parables, the new patch, the new wine represent Jesus. He is not an attachment He is not an addition to religious adherence to certain rules and regulations. He's not a helper. He is a rescuer. This is where this is so important for us. Jesus is not your helper to try to aid you in getting to eternal life somehow. I'm afraid that many times we kind of picture Jesus as an add-on, as something extra. As long as I'm kind of living this moral life and doing these things and I show up at church and here's my history and I grew up a Methodist or I grew up a Presbyterian or a Baptist or whatever it was you were, um, a Catholic or whatever it might be, is, you know, this is kind of my, this is my system of rules and regulations. This is my checkbox and I just need a little bit of Jesus to put me over the edge because I fall short. Adding Jesus to a religious structure that makes us comfortable. And Jesus says, I'm not a helper. I'm a rescuer. I came to replace the old. I'm not an add-on with the old because in doing that, it destroys both. The gospel is not Jesus plus anything. Are you hearing me? It's not Jesus plus anything. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus cannot be integrated into or contained in some type of pre-existing religious structures and systems. He is greater than them. He is superior to them. He fulfills the law, he says. Religious observances are not a competition. The Pharisees had created this whole religious class system so that you could determine who is righteous, who is not, who is holy, who is not. Who's obedient, who is not? Who is in, who is out? And it was largely based on outward adherence, things that could be measured, observed, performed and Jesus does not fit into this distorted model of religious observance. He and his followers supersede these traditional patterns of, religious, of religion. Jesus introduces a new way of living that flows from a heart that has been awakened by the new, that has been awakened by the gospel, that has been awakened by the grace and the forgiveness of God. Jesus introduces a way of living that is not defined by rules and regulations, but is defined by joy and celebration. He establishes a new reality, living life under his rule and his reign. His followers are called to forsake their current way of living. It's what we've talked about every week. When Jesus says repent and believe, this idea of repentance is Jesus is saying, you no longer live life under your way of living and thinking, your rule and reign. You are coming into my way of living, my rule and reign. Repent is to turn from your rule and reign and to turn to my rule and reign. Right? Believing is transferring from the way I believe about living life to the way Jesus instructs me to live about life. It's a new way that is awakened in the hearts. It's not about rules and regulations and do's and don'ts. His followers are invited to realign our lives under the rule and reign of the groom. This expanding kingdom that's not defined by rules, regulation, who's in, who's out, based on these exterior things. Let's be honest. This new way of living is a threat to the religious status quo. I mean, again, you have to think. Until Jesus' arrival, God had basically been silent for 400 years. Think about the patterns of religious, that religion that had been established among God's people after 400 years of silence. This is the only thing they knew. Who's in, who's out, who's righteous, who's not, based on all of this kind of external adherence. And I want to tell you again, we can't distance ourselves from the reality of this is kind of how it functions in the church today. Lots of people believing they're in or out based on whatever criteria they've created that's usually defined by something external. I look like this, dress like this, behave like this, don't drink this, don't smoke that. And so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a Jesus follower because I've checked all the right boxes. The rule and reign of Christ in our hearts. This new way of living that threatens the religious status quo. Here's why it's so important. Here's why it's so difficult. Religious activity is easy to measure. It's easy to measure. It's easy to say, I did these things. It's easy to assess, right? It's easy to appraise. Like I'm in because here's my religious checkbox and all these people are out because they don't check the same boxes. That's easy. Measuring things by religious activity is our natural pull. It's how we live life. This person must be a Christian because here's all the reasons. This person can't be a Christian because here's all the reasons. That's easy stuff. It allows us to have a measuring stick. And this episode of Jesus with the Pharisees about fasting, it challenges us. It challenges us to question the purpose and the motive behind our religious activities. And let me take it a step further. It also challenges us to question the purpose and motive not only of our religious activities, but our lack of religious activities. Here's what that means. There are some of you that feel like you can never quite measure up. Maybe you're not like all in with Jesus because you think like, here's what that looks like and I, I I can't keep all these rules. I can't keep all these regulations and my life looks like this and here's what it means to follow Jesus. It looks like this. And so you've just kind of wiped your hands of the whole thing. Or maybe you show up at church on occasion and hear a message and, you know, hear a few songs and then it's just kind of life in my kingdom the rest of the time. Because you kind of feel like I don't meet all this criteria. And so Jesus, the story of Jesus invites both those of us who are drawn toward the idea of here's all my do's and don'ts of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and those who are the opposite. Right? I say it all the time. It is for both the self-righteous and the unrighteous that need the gospel. This invitation into the kingdom. See, here's my question. Are we trying to elicit God's grace, forgiveness, or acceptance through our religious activities? Are we living off of some spiritual checklist that makes us feel holy or unholy based on what we do or do not do? Here's what the New Testament teaches. Any attempt to gain God's favor through outward conformity or religious activities is to be rejected as contrary to the gospel itself. Paul deals with this over and over in the early churches. You know why? Because that's our natural bent. Our natural bent is if I do all these things, everything's okay. And if I'm not doing them, everything's not okay. And Paul over and over and over again yells in our ear in the New Testament, that's not the gospel. It's the opposite of the gospel. There's nothing you can do to earn God's grace, forgiveness, or acceptance. Any attempt to do that is a distortion of the gospel. Here's what Jesus did not do. We've already read how he called the four fishermen, how he called Levi. In none of those instances did Jesus come out with a booklet, right? Jesus didn't come up with a booklet and be like, like, here's what it means to follow me. Here's the 72 rules if we're going to go oral traditions route over 350 rules, okay? Here's the 72 rules of what it means to follow me. Do these things and you can be one of my followers. Give up these things. Stop doing these things. Start doing these things. Here's my booklet on what it means to follow me. What did Jesus say? Wherever you're at in life, and we saw last week I leave I was at a pretty jacked up place. Wherever you're at in life, follow me. Follow, follow me, Jesus said. It's not about the rules and the regulations, the do's and the don'ts, and here's your list of what it means to follow me. It's about step-by-step, everyday living, eyes fixated on Jesus. And the opposite of that is a distortion of the gospel. So fasting and other religious observances and activities, they are meaningful. They are sincere. Listen, when they come out of our love and devotion to Jesus, Conforming to certain rules and regulations is not what it means to follow him. We live in obedience from our acceptance by God, not for his acceptance. You have to get that distinction in the Christian life. Fasting and other religious activities and observances is not for God to love me, for God's acceptance, for God to smile on me. It is out of it. It's because God has loved me, because God has accepted me. I fast because I'm so in love with Jesus right now, I can't even think about food. I read my Bible not because I get to check some spiritual checklist that makes me acceptable before God and God's going to love me more today because I spent five minutes reading this morning. I read my Bible because I'm in love with a God who would redeem me. And I want to get to know him more. And because I'm accepted by him, I want to get in his word. I want to talk to him. I want to tell other people about him. The difference in for acceptance and from acceptance. I don't want us to miss in these stories of Jesus right here in Mark that Jesus' ministry focuses more often on table fellowship than fasting. Like he is accosted by the religious people of his day for spending so much time in table fellowship with the wrong people. And we saw last week, he's the center of these events. He's the host of the party. He is the bridegroom and joy is found in the celebration of the groom, of who he is. And this idea continues today. True and lasting joy are found in Jesus. So let's break this down in everyday life. As we live life as kingdom citizens in this in between season, the already that has been accomplished and the not yet that is still to come, we focus our eyes and celebrate who Jesus is. That he is absent yet present. Here's real life because he is absent, we face sorrow. Because he is absent, we face hurt. We face pain. We face difficulty. We face temptation. We face sickness. Because he is absent, we invite people in Sarita's stage of life to come up and pray over her because he's absent. There's brokenness, there's cancer, and there's chemo, and there's sickness, and there's struggles and there's divorces and there's hurt and there's grief like right this is this is what marks the not yet part of our existence the brokenness still exists and so we face the brokenness of a world where his kingdom has not been fully realized it's not yet at the same time he is not completely removed from us he is present. You see, we do not face the brokenness alone. We do not face it alone. We face it with the confidence and the hope and the joy that his kingdom will be fully realized and the brokenness will be vanquished and redeemed for his glory and for our good. He is with us. He walks through the valley with us. He does not leave us alone in the valley of shadow of death. He is there. He is real. He is present. He is with you and in you. already, but not yet. And in the, in, in the meantime, we keep our eyes fixated on our king, living as kingdom citizens, fasting, praying, getting the Bible in us, walking in obedience, not so that we might somehow gain his approval or be made righteous, but because we are already approved and righteous in him. And that is worth celebrating. It's worth celebrating. So hear me clearly. We are followers of Jesus. That's worth celebrating. So what that looks like in everyday life is celebrate it, right? Invite people over to your house to celebrate, like gather around the table, break out the good food and wine, like strike up the music and dance and joy the grace and the goodness and the gifts of our King. Celebrate him he is worth celebrating he is a good and gracious king who gives gifts enjoy the gifts we are followers of Jesus and so we gather as followers of Jesus and we enjoy the gifts of our king we enjoy the gifts because the gifts point us where they point us to the giver He is the giver of good gifts. He is worth celebrating. So gather with other Jesus followers in this in-between season, the already, the not yet, where brokenness still happens, to encourage and to celebrate and to get our eyes fastened on Jesus. Remember what Jesus said at the Lord's Supper? Again, time of eating. All right time of remembrance. Again, a lot of what Jesus' ministry happened around the table, amen. And so there's Jesus, Lord's Supper. He says, you're going to do this with me, but there's coming a day when you'll do it where? In God's kingdom. He's pointing ahead to that final scene when we will gather as his followers around that final table, that final feast, and enjoy that final wedding celebration. Celebrating him because he is worth Celebrating. Let me just read it for you. This is not even on the screens. I just thought of it this morning, but here's Revelation 19. In Revelation 19, there's this scene where there's all this rejoicing in heaven, and then verse 6 of Revelation 19, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of many peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. Here it is. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her, right? Granted her. We live from acceptance. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. What's happening in Mark 2 is an anticipation of what happens in Revelation 19. When Jesus says, the groom is here, celebrate, right? It's a wedding happening not a time for fasting and mourning it's not a time for sadness it's a time for celebration and what Jesus is doing is he is pointing forward to a final wedding celebration when we will gather around the table and eat good food and drink good drink and make music and dance and celebrate King Jesus for all eternity and guess what in that moment all the brokenness is gone It's removed, it is taken away, and we spend eternity together as followers of Jesus, living in eternal life, celebrating our King. And so, when we gather, when we take the Lord's Supper, and we get together in small groups, when we invite people to our house to eat good food and to talk about Jesus and celebrate what he's doing, right? When we do all these things, these are small little glimpses of what it means to be Jesus followers who are looking forward to a final day when we are invited to the what? Marriage Supper of the Lamb. And all the Southern people are like, amen, they called it supper, right? The the final gathering at the final table of our king to celebrate him for all eternity so when we sing when we lift our voices to our king in the here and now right we are anticipating a day when we will celebrate him for all eternity so that's why i encourage you man woman boy girl celebrate king Jesus. When we strike up the band and sing, celebrate Jesus. It's not about you. It's about him. I didn't like the worship today. Good. It wasn't for you. It's for him. I wasn't saying like I didn't like the worship today. I thought the worship today was awesome. You know what I'm saying, right? Before you whisper in my ear, I didn't really like the worship today. Good. It wasn't for you. It's for Jesus. We are celebrating him. Talking to men right here. I know, I know. I tend to take a step back, all that celebration stuff, singing stuff, raising hand stuff, not really for me. I'm a southern man. I hunt and fish and fix cars and mow grass, right? That's not for me. I get it. I get it. Not about you. It is about celebrating a king who is worth celebrating and anticipating a day when the brokenness will be removed and the not yet will become the now. Let's bow our heads for prayer.